Everybody in Job, got your Bibles open, book of Job. How many people are having a good day? Having a good day? All right, listen, you know you're having a bad day when you scream at your coworkers for moving your desk and then realize you're in the wrong office. You know it's gonna be a bad day when you get the senior discount at breakfast and you're under 40. It's gonna be a bad day when you have a black cat that crosses your path and it drops dead. That's not good. You know you're gonna have a bad day when your car horn gets stuck while driving behind some hell's angels. That's not gonna be good. Well, listen, those are just a few signs of having a bad day, but the book of Job here now is gonna take it to a whole new level. And I'm sure all of you here are well acquainted with the book of Job. It's a amazing book with an amazing story and an amazing message for us. However, it's one of those books that people oftentimes shy away from because they don't wanna have to go through the same kinds of trials or be tested like Job was. They're like, I don't even wanna get familiar with that. I don't want the Lord to do that for me, right? And so it can be a book that we often shy away from. It can be confusing at times as to what's exactly going on, but... We're familiar well enough with the hardships that Job had to endure, no doubt. And we're going to be looking at those tonight. We're going to be seeing some of these things. But understand here in the book of Job, these testings and trials that Job went through are not just arbitrary. They all served a purpose. You got to get that in mind right away. The things that Job went through were not arbitrary. They served a purpose. More so, they served God's purpose. Because that purpose was not necessarily for Job but it was all about God, you see. It was all about God exercising his sovereignty. That's really what the book of Job is all about. Now, what's interesting is that the book of Job, most likely, is the oldest book that we have in the Bible, which would make it one of the oldest pieces of literature in the annals of writing. Now, think about that for a second. The oldest book in the Bible right here, which makes it all the more fascinating because it's no accident then that as the first biblical book is penned, that God wants to make sure that you grasp this very necessary theological truth. And that is that God is sovereign and that God is in control of all things and that God is working all things to fulfill and accomplish his purposes. So you have to grasp that right away. It's all about the sovereignty of God. And right at the very beginning, the first book really penned in the Bible is detailing God's sovereignty because everything really falls into place after that. If we don't catch that part of it, we're gonna have trouble with other theological truths of God and of God's word. And it's one that we have to really wrestle with and grapple with because we often don't like the idea of surrendering control to another we like to sing, you know, Jesus, I got the wheel. Don't take it from my hand, right? We don't want to sing the other way around. We want to sing, I got it, Lord. Don't touch the wheel. I've got this. Don't take the wheel. No, I got it. We have a hard time with that. But yet that's what the book of Job is all about. And so we learn in the book of Job that God does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants, and to whomever he wants. He's the supreme God who is orchestrating all things in this world and in this universe to bring about his glory. It's incredible to bring about his glory. And that's why we exist, everybody, okay? God doesn't exist for us. We exist for God and we exist for God's glory. So understand that we have to bring that really before us here as we get into this book. So this book teaches us that we need to simply trust God. Trusting God. And yet, like I say, that's a place that we oftentimes struggle with. Either in coming to God in faith, or for those that might be already in a relationship with God, it's the why questions of life that we struggle with. I remember when I worked at a daycare, we had one girl, her name was Linda. For those of you Lindas, don't, not stereotyping here, but this young girl was named Linda, and everything that we said, she responded with, Why? Why? Everything. It didn't matter what you said. It was always, why? With this blank look on her face, why? It's like, don't, I just, and, and it's like that. We oftentimes struggle with the, the whys in this world. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering in the world? 
Maybe those are questions that you've grappled with without a lot of success. And they're questions that we're gonna have to come to terms with because you, you don't have to be married to know what it is to suffer. I'm just throwing that in there, making sure you're awake. You've all heard the three rings of marriage, right? The engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. You've heard that right before, haven't you? Listen, I'm just having fun, all right? I am happily married, and I just like to... I can poke around at it because I'm so confident in my marriage, that's it. So. But it's interesting that in the book of Job, uh, he had everything taken from him, except his wife. His wife was left behind. I don't know if that was to add to the suffering or just to... Maybe that was God's grace. Let's say it's God's grace, okay? I'm having fun, guys, about that, but that's, I don't mean any of that. I'm joking around. But listen, we can all identify with the pain and the suffering of Job on some level, can't we? And this book wants us to focus on the, the faith that we're to have in the midst of those trials and difficulties. We're to trust in the sovereignty of God because he is, after all, working all things together for good, Right? For the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the great lesson in the book of Job. Now, even though there's a lot of questions being given, why is this happening? Here's the thing. In the book of Job, those questions never get answered. God never answers those questions for Job or for his friends that we're gonna see coming up here. Though Job questioned God, he never got the answers and he never doubted God. Job just had to trust him and believe that God was in control and was working out his purposes for all that happened to him. In the same way for us, there may be things that, that happen in our lives that we won't have answers to or be able to understand fully, but we have to trust God and believe that in his infinite wisdom, he's working everything together to accomplish his good and perfect purposes and plans that are ultimately for our good. Isaiah 55, eight says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. So God is doing something that oftentimes contrary to what we think is the right way or the best way. But God says, my ways aren't your ways. So trust that what I'm doing is gonna actually accomplish things for the better than your ways would. So like I said, this book here, one of the earlier pieces of literature that we have in history, it's a great literary masterpiece. It's written in poetic form. It begins the section uh, of the Bible known as this poetic section that, that goes through Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and such. And so these are all poetic books. Now they're not written Poetically, like we would have our poetry, it's not like always rhyming, but the way that it's laid out and written is in that Hebrew poetic form. So in the book of Job, interestingly, we have a lot of expressions that have been put to use today that come from, stem from the book of Job. Very interesting. Things like this, the hair on my body stood up or my hair stood on end. That's from Job chapter four. My life is a breath. Uh, put my life in my hands. There is no justice. I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. That's here in the book of Job. The root of the matter. Or put your hand over your mouth. The land of the living. Words without knowledge. The gates of death. Repent in dust and ashes. These are all found here in the book of Job, interestingly. So here's the outline that we're going to be looking at. Job's distress, chapters 1 to 3. Then Job's defense, chapters 4 to 37. And then Job's deliverance, chapter 38 to 42. These are the things that we're going to be looking at here. So let's, let's just kind of take some time here, uh, read through part of chapter one, and really kind of give us some context as to what's going on. And Cole, can I get you just to hit those lights on to, I think, like, whatever it is, number one or something on those lights up here? All right. Um, number one or two, whatever we usually have it on. Okay, so let's go, Job chapter one. And let's start in verse one. And here's what we read. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East." And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. 
So we'll, um, we'll stop right there. What we see here in that first section is that a Job's a wealthy man, all right? He's a wealthy man. He's got a, a great life here. He's got a big family. And he's a man that's living a devoted life to God. You would think if anyone would be immune from suffering, it would be Job, right? Based on the kind of man that he is, his character, his life, you think this guy's gonna be free from, there's no way that this guy's gonna have to go through trials of any, any sort. But then we see that the scene now in chapter one shifts to that of heaven. And we recognize there's a war going on behind the scenes. Behind what we see in the natural with what we just looked at with Job's life and what's going on, there's a scene going on behind the scenes, activity, a war that's at, at that's battling, that's, that's waging here. And it's one where Job and his friends that we're gonna be seeing are, are gonna be unable to see. A lot of activity happening around us that we're not privy to. That is why it's so paramount that we learn to walk by faith and to trust God in trying times because we don't always know what's really going on. We don't have the full picture oftentimes as to what God is doing, what he's trying to accomplish or work out. All we see is the natural and oftentimes that's enough to cause us to, to run, to fear, to tremble, to hide, whatever it might be. But yet we fail to see what God actually has going on. And so understand Job and the friends that he's going to be in dialogue with in this book, they have no idea what's going on here in, in chapter one ultimately. But God is at work here and he's working on us, in us, and through us. And he's doing it all for his glory. Like I said, God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him and for his glory. So let's see the scene going on in heaven. It's an interesting one. Verse six of chapter one. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. So the sons of God, they're angels. That's the reference here. Angels are there, again, just before the Lord. And then Satan comes along with them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered, answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here's a very interesting situation unfolding here, isn't it? And it's the only time in the, in the Bible where we see the sort of scene kind of unfolding, where angels are there and Satan is there in the presence of God. Satan was himself an angel at one time, a fallen angel now, but he has this access there before God. And let's just be clear here. God knows exactly what, where Satan has been and what he's up to when he says, Satan, where, where are you coming from? God's not like, hey, fill me in on what's going on. I'm, no, God knows exactly where Satan's been and what he's doing. But he's, again, seeking to draw Satan into confession, just like he does all of us seeking for us to come to him with confessing, being honest and truthful. Perhaps this is the only time that Satan's being honest here as he's answering the Lord. I'm just roaming around on the earth there, right? And that's an interesting thing because Satan is known and referred to as the ruler of this earth, John 12, verse 31, the ruler of this world. So he's walking around the earth, perhaps exercising his kind of authority over his domain here. And he's on the prowl looking for who he may devour. First Peter chapter five, verse eight makes that very clear. So there's Satan. He's at work in the world, looking to bring others down. All right, getting a report on what's going on. He's not, and understand he's not omniscient, in the sense that he just knows, no. He's got his, his demons, his minions that are roaming around and they're collecting information, data, no doubt. Knowing how to access temptation and, and, and what's you know, gonna work. And, and he's had a long range over thousands of years of knowing human nature and knowing what's gonna work and trying to trip people up and bring them down. So here he is at, at work in the world, I understand that. But now God does something here that kind of, Shocks me. He suggests 
to Satan, hey, how about my servant Job, right? Now, just imagine if Job is there on the scene at this. Imagine if you're on the scene, you hear God throwing your name under the bus. You're like, God, what are you doing? No, wait. It's like sitting in, you know, church and they're asking for volunteers for a work day and your wife says, hey, my husband will do it. You know, you're like, what are you doing? Don't throw me under the bus. No, don't. And that's what God is doing, but only he's throwing Job to Satan, the lion, throwing him right into the lion's den in a sense. This is crazy. But God knows that Job is blameless and upright. That's the, the description that's given in chapter one, the very beginning about Job, but now God echoes that. That's not just the author's point of view. This is God's point of view. Job is blameless and he's upright. And to be blameless doesn't mean that he's sinless. Let's make that clear. It's not speaking about Job without sin. Being, being sinless is what's taking place on the vertical plane, you know, your relationship before God. But being blameless is, is what's happening on the horizontal plane, be, you know, among other people. In other words, other people are seeing you as kind of being that moral, upright person. Unable to really cast that kind of judgment against you. It doesn't mean that Job's not, that he's sinless here, but it just means that he's having a good rapport among his fellow men. And Satan believes that the only reason that Job is living this way and that he's fearing God is simply because he's being blessed. So Satan challenges God, listen, take those things away and he's gonna curse you to your face. The only reason he's worshiping you, God, is so that he can be blessed. That's kind of Satan's conclusion here in these things. So Satan throws that challenge out. Remove that stuff and you'll see that Job is gonna be, is gonna resort to just cursing you now. So God accepts this challenge, all right? But God gives the parameters of what Satan can and cannot do. Now that is really important for us to understand and comprehend tonight. Because like I said, Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't see everything or know everything. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent being everywhere. Satan is limited. And God puts limits on him. In other words, Satan cannot do anything unless God allows him to do it. Think about that. Because see, we oftentimes are quick to blame Satan for our woes, for the problems that we're experiencing. We like to use Satan as an excuse. Well, I did that only because Satan was really active and pursuing me. Satan gets a lot of credit. Too much credit, I would say, a lot of times for the things that are going on. But understand, what's behind all that? None of that stuff would be happening by Satan unless God allowed it. God's allowing it. God's at work even, using Satan to accomplish his purposes and plans. Let's not be quick to blame Satan all the time, but to see what God is desiring and wanting to do and work in us through all of that. So here's the great thing. I don't need to fear or worry when setbacks come or when I might think Satan is getting the upper hand. I don't need to wonder why God isn't responding because God is the orchestrator of it all and he's doing a work for his glory and my good. And so I need to simply trust the Lord and stay close to him. So Satan goes ahead here. He, he hits Job hard. Job loses all of his livestock, which is really his wealth. He loses his servants and he loses his family, all of his kids aside from his wife, everything. And notice in verse 13, it says, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine and their oldest brother says, let me just stop there. What I wanna emphasize is that there was a day. All of this happened in a day. His family's gone, servants gone, livestock's gone. Job loses everything in a day. And you might think, I'm having a bad day once in a while. Man, just bring that into comparison of what Job had to experience in a day. But notice how Job responds. Jump down to verse 20. Then Job arose, he tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now it's become very popular in contemporary worship here, but this is where it's from, right? From Job's mouth here. See, Job simply saw himself as a steward of all that God has given him. In other words, Job realizes none of the stuff is really mine. I came into the world naked and, and I'm not gonna 
take anything with me. All this is of the Lord and I'm just a steward of it. So he's able to come and just relinquish, give that over to the Lord. Now, there's grief, there's mourning. He's, he's tearing his robe, shaving his head. That's a sign of grief and that's important to do. Listen, we don't just callously or, or stoically just kind of move on through like, okay, well, whatever, just move on. No, I mean, we agree. These, these, things, these things hit us. These are difficult to go through, but we understand, God, I'm yours and everything I have is yours. Help me just to trust you in and through all of this. Paul would say much the same thing in 1 Timothy 6, 7 when he says, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You know, anybody can say the Lord gave or the Lord has taken away, but it takes real faith in the midst of tragedy and suffering to be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's where God wants us to to get to, to be able to come to that place where we can say in the midst of it all, yet still will I praise him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, listen to what Sandy Adams said. He said this, here's a heavy truth. The story of Job teaches us that you and I are caught up in a colossal battle. C.S. Lewis observed, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and is counterclaimed by Satan. And they're fighting over our reactions. Heaven is watching, guys. How I respond to a flat tire or, or how I treat a rude waitress or how I deal with an unfair grade or how I handle the news of a terminal illness. My reaction either brings glory to God or bolsters Satan's blasphemies. God may have pinned his Holy reputation on your reaction to the trial you're facing. Understand the stress in your life may be a test of your faith. Would you love God even if he withdrew his benefits? I hope we'd all share Job's attitude. Now here's the key. Through all this, Job did not look to God as being unfair or wrong in what has happened. He instead just worshiped God. God, I'm gonna worship you. I'm gonna still praise you. May we find ourselves pressing in all the more to God in times of suffering and hardship rather than finding reasons to pull away from God. How we need to come to Lord and just worship him and lean on him and trust that what he's doing, he's doing for his glory and our good. Well, chapter two, we get round two now between Satan and God. Satan's plan didn't work the first time. Take away all of his goods, God, and He's gonna curse you to your face. Round one goes to God, as if there was any doubt. But now round two, Satan's gone, ah, let me at him personally, God, and then you will see he's gonna curse you to your face once his health is kind of taken from him. So the Lord allows it, but God allows or, or tells Satan not to touch or not to take his life. He spares it. You can touch his life, but don't take his life. All right, so look at verse seven of chapter two. Verse seven, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity in all this? Job did not sin with his lips. Job says that they freely and gladly receive good from God. Isn't it fair to also receive adversity from time to time? Those that are receiving good, shouldn't they also expect to receive adversity at times? Now, for those of us in Christ, we've already received all the good that we can ever hope for because as believers today, we're in Christ. We have new life. We have the promise of eternal life. We have, we have Jesus, you know, strengthening us, living in us. Even if hardship comes, those truths and realities never get canceled out. So we always have the reality and the hope of what we already have in Christ. And as Paul said in Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time, not to be worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. See, every suffering that we might experience is all gonna be worth it. In fact, it's not even gonna be worthy 
of being compared with that which we'll one day receive. There's just no comparison. We'll never get to heaven and go, okay, I'm looking around, I'm seeing everything now. Let's see, was this worth all the suffering that I had to endure? It'll, it'll never even, even be comparable. The glory that's awaiting us is, Paul says, it's just far gonna outweigh, far gonna exceed what you could ever hope for and expect. Everything you go through in this world is going to be worth it in light of what God has in store for us. That's the hope that we hold on to. And if we believe that God is working all things together for good, then we need to be willing to accept adversity from time to time and not freak out over it. In times of difficulty, we don't need to ask, how can I get out of this? But we should be asking rather, what can I get out of this? God, what are you wanting to do in me, through me? What do you want to teach me or reveal to me in this? Now we're reminded in our text tonight here that God is in complete control and he's moving everything according to his good will and purposes. Again, our lives are existing for his glory, not our comfort here. Now, I know what you might be thinking here. We're already like, you know, half an hour in and only chapter two. How are we gonna get through this whole book? But listen, I'm purposefully or purposely taking some time here in just kind of like our, our pre-flight, you know, set up here, getting ourselves acclimated, situated with what's in store here. And once we kind of take off down the runway, which we're sort of prepping to do, we're just gonna kind of, you know, let you guys nap in the air here, put on a nice movie. We're not gonna be worried too much about what's happening in the middle part of the flight. And then we're just gonna kind of look at what's gonna be coming at the end here again. So we're taking a lot of time to really set this up first because this is really where we see a lot of these foundational truths now and seeing what God has in store. And so we're gonna move through a lot of this book very quickly, all right? Again, taking that bird's eye view here, 30,000 feet and, and moving through it. So we'll get through it, don't worry. But what we're gonna be seeing here now in, um, in this book here, primarily here, um, moving on, is um, this dialogue that's going to be taking place between Job and his three friends. I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but let's, let's jump to verse 11 of chapter 2. Because here's his three friends introduced to us. And it says this, verse 11 of chapter 2. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that, that his grief was very great. So here we're introduced to these three friends now. Eliphaz, Bildad, and, and Zophar. We're going to get very familiar with these guys as you go through the book of Job here. But what they do right now is really good. Because they come, they sit down with Job, and they just kind of grieve with him. And for seven days, they just sit there without speaking a word. Nothing needs to be said. They provide a very good example for us, although... The rest of the book, they don't always provide a great example, but right now they're providing a good example for us of how to come alongside those who are suffering. Because oftentimes what we want to do when we see somebody suffering, we want to come in and speak great words of wisdom to them that's going to really, you know, pick them up or, or make sense of everything. Unfortunately, what we often do is that we exacerbate the pain rather than alleviate it. What people need in those times of suffering, a pain, of trial. It's just the quiet support that we can give them. Just being with them in their pain and suffering oftentimes is what's necessary. And that's what these friends are doing around. They're just sitting with Job, silently grieving with them, being empathetic. Sometimes the Lord will allow you to go through pain and suffering so that you can later on know how best to minister to other people going through pain and suffering, going through similar situations. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse three to five, blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all the tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. See, we may not always know why God allows things, but we don't need to know. Remember, spoiler alert here, God never lets Job know what he's doing and why he's done it. Job is never let in on this whole scene that took place in heaven. He has no idea about those things. All Job needs to know is that God is God and he's working out his plans through every trial, circumstance, and experience. We just need to learn to trust in God's goodness. So from chapters four to 25, we're gonna see three rounds of discussion that are taking place between those three friends of Job and Job. It's gonna kind of go in this series where Eliphaz will start and he's gonna seek to try to counsel Job as to what's going on or what he needs to do. And then Job's gonna respond. Then Bildad will give his two bits and then Job will respond. And then Zophar's gonna come in and give his two bits and then Job responds. And then it repeats. Same order, same way. And repeats a third time. Only the third time, the last friend, Zophar, doesn't, he's kind of done at that point. He's like, you guys, we've covered it all. And that's what's happening is it just kind of gets this repetitive dialogue going on as these guys are trying to find wisdom, trying to explain this all away and bring understanding, but also to tell Job what he needs to do and, and what the problem is. And so they're speaking to him in this way. Now, understand that the book of Job contains some kind of misapplied truth or, or faulty theology because these guys are trying to, trying to bring God to a level that they can understand or explain away and say, this is why, Job, this is why you're experiencing this. Instead of just saying, we don't understand, but we need to trust God in this. We need to look to the Lord. All three men, as Warren Rearsby said, all three men said some good and true things as well as some foolish things, but they were of no help to Job because their viewpoint was too narrow. Their theology was not vital and vibrant, but dead and rigid. And the God they tried to defend was small enough to be understood and explained. So here's some examples of what these guys are doing here. Let's gonna go through briefly some of their discussions with Job and, and Job's response. It starts out with Eliphaz here. Go to chapter four, verse seven to nine. It says there, chapter four, verse seven, remember now, this is Eliphaz speaking to Job, remember now, whoever perished being innocent or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I've seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God, they perish and by the breath of his anger, they are consumed. Eliphaz here is basically holding to the notion that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. That's basically what he's saying to Job. So Job, the reason you're going through this is because, well, you've done something bad. That's why you're experiencing all these things. And so for the next 28 chapters, basically, from chapter 4 to 31, we're going to see this ongoing discussion, debate, dispute over the reason that Job is going through this. And the prevailing thought and answer given is that Job is deserving of this because of some kind of sin that he just needs to repent of. It's something that Job has done. Just repent already, Job, and then you'll be done with this. That's kind of the, the premise, the notion, the, the sentiment here on these three friends or by these three friends. And you see, God could have ended this at any point after chapter four, after chapter eight, after chapter 11 of all these different discussions happening here. But he lets us go on for 20 chapters to let us get the picture that this has absolutely nothing to do with sin. This has nothing to do with the individual, but it has to do with God's glory. It's his sovereign will in these things. That's why God chose a man like Job that he could say, he's blameless and upright. Have you considered him? Because he's the man that's gonna reveal and show that I do what I do for my purposes and for my will. That's God's heart in this. So nothing will have to do with, so now don't get me wrong here because the Bible teaches very clearly, you reap what you sow. There are natural 
consequences and repercussions for sin. Don't get me wrong. But it is not a, a blanket truth that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people because there's a lot of good that happens to bad people and there's a lot of bad that happens to good people. Our automatic summation of suffering should not be to say, what have I done? But rather, God, what are you wanting to do? Now, Job is gonna be up and down in terms of his faith here. He's a man hurting. He's in despair. So he too will say some unfortunate things, but he won't do what Satan said he would, and that was to curse God to his face. Job's not gonna do that. He's gonna be questioning. He's wondering, what's going on? God, where are you? Why are you allowing this? He's gonna question God. He's in despair, he's hurting, but he's not going to forsake God or curse God. Here's what Job simply says in chapter six, verse 14, in response. Here's one little part of his response here. Job says, chapter six, verse 14, to him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Basically, Job is trying to rebuke his friend, saying, listen, stop trying to debate theology here and just try being a little more empathetic, all right? That's kind of what Job is saying. So next friend that steps up is Bildad now. Bildad steps in and he continues on this kind of dialogue to Job. Go to chapter eight, verse four. Chapter eight, verse four. Here's what we read about Bildad. And in his response to Job, he says, if your sons have sinned against him, well, he's cast them away for their transgression. If you, Job, would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. So Bildad comes along and with a great empathetic heart, he says, it must be because your sons have sinned that God has caused them to perish. How very warm and Kind of you, Bildad, to say that. And basically, Bildad goes on to say, you just need to repent, Job. You need to take this to the Lord, get right with him, and then he's just gonna fix everything. Here's Job's response, chapter nine. Verse one. Chapter nine, then Job answered and said, truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand so Job is saying here that what Bildad has said may be true in principle, but how can, ever, how can anyone ever be fully righteous before God? See, Job is not at a loss of how a person can be righteous or how a person can be even saved before God. This isn't something that's a mystery to Job. He's just admitting that God is so great and man is not, that we can never be fully innocent before God. We're never gonna be able to stand in and of ourselves righteous before God. And there's great truth to that because we can never look at our lives and think that we're the reason why we're saved. We're the reason why we're being blessed. As though we've just come along, cleaned ourselves up, we've made ourselves right with God and so now we're just reaping the benefits. That never lies within ourselves. That's the grace of God. We simply come and surrender and yield ourselves and accept that free gift of salvation. And it's through the righteousness of Christ that we are made righteous before God. We have nothing to boast in. That's kind of what Job is saying here. Well, the next friend that comes on the scene is Zophar now. They're all there together. They're all waiting their turn to just kind of speak. Eliphaz seemed to be the oldest of the three. He goes first. Bildad and then Zophar joins in. And in chapter 11, go to chapter 11, verse 13. Here's what we hear from Zophar. Chapter 11, verse 13. He says, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away. Zophar's final counsel to Job is this, just simply repent. All this is the result of your sin. Just give it over to the Lord. Just admit it. Confess, repent. So remember here, these three friends are basically kind of like the 
original prosperity preachers here now. Because they're basically saying, man, you just follow God, God's gonna bless you. You live for God, everything's just gonna be flowing in abundance in your life. Don't follow God, don't live for God, well, you're not gonna have those things. He basically, or these three, are basically saying that God will bless and prosper you for living righteously, but he's gonna punish you for living wickedly. But you see, none of that was true for Job. And none of that is true for today either. We learn through the story of Job that not every setback in life is because of our sin or our doing. Neither can we say that every fortune of man is a result of God's blessing. Hugh Hefner wasn't a wealthy man because of his devotion to God, right? And so we can't apply that principle these guys are trying to apply. That prosperity preachers try to apply today. That's simply what these men are trying to promote. But look at Job's response here, chapter 13, verse 13. Job says, hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Job doesn't want these guys butting in any longer. He kind of just says, let me finish here, right? Hold your peace with me. Let me speak, he says in verse 13. And Job gets to the very core of what is keeping him going through these very trying times. And this is a great place of resolution to be. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Wow, that was Job's faith and resolve in life right there. He saw his life as the Lord's. My life is his. Just like he would say in the beginning there. He didn't bring anything into this world. It's all the Lord's. He gives and he takes away. And if the Lord wanted to say to him or wanted to slay him and take his life, that wouldn't change Job's attitude in living for him or just being surrendered to him or trusting him. Are we able to say that in ourselves? That's what living your life as a sacrifice looks like. Being that place where you can say, Lord, if you want to take my life, if you want to do this to me, I'm still going to trust you. My life is yours. I'm going to live for you. Or are we only serving the Lord if it means everything is comfortable in life? Now it's easy, I think it's probably easier at times to say, if he slays me, I'll trust him. But if we were to say, if he sends boils from my feet to the top of my head, still I'll trust him. That might be another thing altogether. It might be easier to say, if he slays me, I'll, I, I can take that, let's just end it. I don't want to go through the pain and suffering, but are we willing to say, Lord, whatever you send my way, I'm still gonna trust you. I'm not giving up on you because you're my life. You're my hope. Without you, I have nothing anyways. Why would I ever turn away from you? That was Job's attitude and resolve in all of this. So this back and forth dialogue just kind of repeats over the next number of chapters here between these three friends and Job. And as you see, Job's friends are hoping that what they're saying is true. Here's why. Because if Job's suffering is not a result of sin and that people might undergo suffering for no other reason than God just allowing it, well, then it means that these three friends are not immune from it themselves. I think they're sitting here going, I am sure counting on and hoping that this is a result of your sin, Job. Because then I know that I can stay in control. As long as I live righteously, then I'm not going to be affected by these things. And I'm sure they're sitting there hoping and praying that it's got something to do with Job. But it's got nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with Job. It's all to do with what God is desiring to do. Listen, here's another highlight from the book of Job. Chapter 19. Jump over to chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 23. Chapter 19, verse 23 says this. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and, and led forever. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? 
that Job is asking for his words to be written. But he's like, oh, if only this could be recorded down. Kind of makes me laugh because if Job could just see the big picture, if, God, if Job could just see what God was actually gonna do, that, is, that his whole life story would be documented in the best-selling book of all time for millions of people to read and be encouraged and impacted by his story. Job saying, oh, only this could be recorded if Job only knew what God had in store. Isn't that great? Very ironic, very cool. See, again, we don't always see the big picture, do we? We don't understand always what God is doing or what God has planned. What we do need to do is get our attention onto God when things don't make sense. Realize that, that he is in control and that we can take comfort and solace in him. That's what Job does so wonderfully next as he went from misery to victory. Look at the next verse there, verse 25, the great passage we read at Easter time. Verse 25 of chapter 19, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. That's so good. He goes on to say, verse 27, whom I, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What a great passage. What a, what a, a, a great attitude from Job. See, this is what happens so often through times of tribulation. We, we grow in our faith. So what's, what's happening in Job's life? We receive greater revelation of who God is and what he's done for us. See, Job grew in his confidence and hope of what the future held. Because I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after I'm destroyed, oh, I'm going to see God. Sometimes that in itself is a blessed byproduct of trials because it not only provides revelation, but kind of redirection. See what's happening in Job right now? He's thinking about eternity. He knows that one day he's gonna see God. And sometimes in our, in our midst of, uh, of trials and tragedy, that it gives us a greater longing for eternity. It gets our eyes sent upon that which really matters. And living this life in a way that says, man, Eternity is right on the horizon. I want to live my life in a way that counts. You see, if we just had a life of comfort, I don't think we would long for heaven. Wouldn't long for heaven in the same way. Sometimes we need to experience the bottom so the only direction we can look up or look at is up and see what God has in store. Without trials, we'd become really comfortable in this life. Stuck to this world that's passing away. But God loves you too much to be focused on the temporal things of this world. So sometimes he allows things in that causes us to have kind of a, a resurgence on that which is eternal. And living for that which truly lasts and matters. Well, having made his breakthrough of faith in God, Job kind of seems a little less frantic now through the rest of the book. He now saw his sufferings in the light of eternity, not just in his lifetime. See, when we can help people gain that perspective on their sufferings, we will find that they too find a little bit of relief and, and know, oh, this is temporary. I'm gonna keep living for that which is eternal. So in chapter 32 to 37, now we have a, a fourth friend speak up. See, I told you we'd move through this quickly here. Chapter 32 to 37 a fourth friend jumps into the picture. Now, he's kind of been waiting in the wings, it would seem, for a chance to speak. Maybe being a little bit younger than the others. And he's getting a little bit wound up now. He's ready to unload. His name is Elihu. And he comes in now, and he rebukes the friends for not convincing Job. And he rebukes Job for his complaints against God. And Elihu has a lot of good and true things to say, but he still doesn't have the whole picture before him. He doesn't have any insight into what's going on in chapter one. He doesn't know what God's been up to in all of this. But he sets the stage now for God to speak up and break through in the story in chapter 38. Chapter 38 now, God comes in. He says, all right, let me just kind of bring this all to rest now. It says in chapter 38, verse one. Let's read a few verses here. Follow along with me, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel? 
by words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what words foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? See, for the last 36 chapters, we've been hearing from Job and his friends. They've been trying to make sense of what's been going on in Job's life. Job primarily has been asking God to answer him. What's, God, what's going on? Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this? Reveal this to me. He's wanting God to reveal himself and also to vindicate Job. Now the problem with this is that as Job questioned God and his justice, Job grew a little bigger in his own estimation while God kind of shrunk in size. But now that God begins to come in the picture, he confronts Job. And now as God begins to lay it out before Job, it's God that's growing in size and Job that begins to decrease as it should be. And God isn't gonna come and give answers to Job. In fact, God's gonna come in and turn the questions around on Job and he lays out 70 questions to be exact. And there is not gonna be a satisfying answer for Job as to why he went through his suffering. The only answer that God reveals is that he is the answer. He's the one that Job needs to hold on to, cling to, trust in through all this. In our difficulty and pain, we don't always need to know the whys. We simply need to know the who. And that's God. And seeing that he desires to work out his will to reveal himself. He desires to bring that peace that surpasses understanding in our, our lives. It's through our trials that our revelation of God is oftentimes deepened. And so as God begins to answer or, or rather lay out these questions on Job, we're gonna see God centering on these two ideas. To Job he says, can you describe my creation? All of chapter 38, verses one to 38 is that question, can you describe my creation? Then he says, can you direct my creation? Can you lead it? The end of chapter 38 into chapter 39. So the two centering ideas in this series of questions, can you describe my creation? Can you direct my creation? And as these questions are posed, Job is gonna be humbled and silenced. He's gonna learn quickly that the only response to life's difficulties and tragedies is to simply... Trust the Lord because he's much bigger and greater than we are and he knows what he's doing. So after God kind of puts Job in his place, as God reveals his greatness, Job, can you answer any of these things that I've done? Can you explain any of this away? And it's a great, a great section. We don't have the time to go into all of that here, but just to see how God kind of lays out all the different workings of his creation. Oh, it's exciting, it's fascinating. In fact, you know what we might do? Hey Cole, maybe you can help with this. Remember that video we played at the end of Job last time from that song? It should be in that video's folder there. Let's see if we can pull it up. Maybe we'll end with that song, it's kind of cool. So that'll help us summarize what God is saying there to Job, if we can find that. But after God now puts Job in his place, Job responds by saying this. Chapter 42, verse two, he says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So here's Job's response. And as Job got a clear picture of God and the greatness of God, Job's all the more ready just to repent now. See, if our difficulties and sufferings can help us see God a little bit more clear and fully, then I'd say it's safe to say that those experiences are worth it. Because Job said there in verse five, I've heard of you, or I know a lot about you, but now my eyes sees you. Now I've seen you personally. 
Now I've been affected by the things that I see that have been by your hand, God. And it drew Job into a greater awareness and awakening of the greatness of God. So Job simply just kind of taps out now to the sovereignty of God. Repentance has happened and reverence has been restored as well as right relationship with God. Job's right back now where he needs to be in just that simple faith and trust in the Lord. And now God was ready to restore everything else to Job. Look at chapter 42, verse 12. Just the first part, verse 12 says, now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Let me just stop right there. Did you catch that? Chapter one, Job had everything taken from him. But now at the end of the story, God restores double. He blessed the latter days of Job more than what he had at the beginning. And Job was a wealthy man to begin with. But now it's just restored even more so. What a great God that we serve. Because he's able to turn the worst of our situations around and turn them into blessings. Job experienced a blessed outcome here now. Everything got replenished double and he died old, it says, and full of days. Just in other words, he died satisfied. Job didn't go to his deathbed kind of grieving, shaking his fist at God. God, why did you have to let that happen? No, died old and full of days, satisfied, content, thankful for the God that he serves. Well, here's a few lessons that we get from the story of Job. Can we, are we able to put that last slide up, Cole? Okay, there it is. Lessons from Job. Suffering brings a proper perspective. We get to see God more clearly and fully. Suffering produces compassion. Allows us to be able to come alongside others to minister in their time of grief or need. Suffering teaches humility. Again, helps us to see how, how great God is, how small we are, how we need to trust him. Suffering causes us to long for return. I think that's so important. And then we also see that God rewards those who are patient, like Job. And he continued on. He endured. He, he had to go through a lot. This wasn't easy, no doubt about it. But he never cursed God. He never gave up on God. Question God, very naturally, why? But he never gave up on God. And James would say, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. I love that. Job never received the answer he was looking for. But Job was patient in affliction and received a great blessing because of it. You see, no suffering is just an arbitrary work of the Lord. God has a purpose in it. And his purpose is for his glory and your good. The intended outcome. The intended outcome that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. God is not looking to beat you down, to hurt you. So without suffering, you know, he wants to build you up. His intended end is that of good. Trust him. Look to him. And hold on to him in those times of suffering. So he won't let you go. We have a merciful high priest who knows what it's like to go through that, who was himself tempted at all points, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to go through the suffering and the difficulty. And we have one that's right there with us to uphold us and to walk through with us. Keep your eyes on him. And let the Lord accomplish his good and perfect work in all of it. Amen? Yeah, that's the book of Job. So do we have that video? Right on. So let's just, we'll kind of watch this. Um, and then let me pray first. And, uh, and then we can watch that video and we'll kind of wrap up with that. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this story that's um, got so relevant and practical for us. Because we live in a fallen world where well, we're not immune from difficulty, suffering, and tragedy. This world is broken, and yet, Lord, in that brokenness, you use all those things to accomplish your good and perfect purposes. Help us to see, Lord, that our lives are not our own. They, they exist for your glory. And God, we're gonna be able to bear through all the things that come our way when we see 
That God, you have a good intended end in all of it. So help us, Lord, to trust you, to hold on to you. Help us to have our faith grow in these times and to allow you to work out your will in and through our lives. Lord, I pray for those that might be here and are going through suffering or tragedy and difficulty. We pray for those in our church, Lord, that aren't here but are going through those kinds of hardships right now. And we pray that you would touch them, Lord, that you would draw them to an awareness of your greatness and your goodness, that they wouldn't question or doubt, but they would put their trust in you. And would you uphold them? Would you strengthen them in that time right now? Would you bring healing where people are sick? Would you bring provision, Lord, where people are, are down and out? Would you bring just strength where people are feeling weak? Would you bring encouragement where people are feeling hopeless? So God, do that work in people's lives here and those just in our church that may not be here, Lord. Would you just comfort them? We commit them to you now in your name, Jesus. Amen.